So my seventh grade English teacher uh, gave out an assignment. Uh, Mr. Kazmaier, good old Mr. Kazmaier. Liked him so much that I had him for ninth grade English as well. Now, I, I want to say that I had him for ninth grade English as well. I didn't have him for seventh grade English twice. All right, make sure you hear that. But he was the same, he was the same teacher, and uh, he had an assignment that he gave to us both years, which we were supposed to choose a biography out of the library, we were to read it, and then we were supposed to stand up uh, and represent this current or historic figure in the first person. Uh, it was to be our life uh, represented to the rest of the class. And so one year I had Doc Holliday, and the next year I had Ben Franklin. That was my two people. Now I should probably say here that uh, the assignment itself had a little bit of a creative bent to it, and whenever that happened in school, I was all in. And my mom had the same problem. She was equally supportive in this process in trying to tackle this creative challenge. And so on the day of both presentations, I showed up uh, at school, and I definitely looked the part. I was Ben Franklin. In fact, I had a kite. That was the end of a coat hanger that was all stretched out so I could fly it with a key hanging off of it. And Doc Holliday, I had a rubber knife with me. Now that back then you could bring a rubber knife to school. Now it's kind of frowned on. But was it, what wasn't my forte was public speaking. I couldn't speak publicly. Too frightened. Too scared. Well, today's reading here offers a, a limited biographical snapshot of two prominent figures in the earliest church, and particularly within the Pauline and the Philippian orbit. And unlike my Holiday and my Franklin uh, performances, these two, they not only look the part, but based on the personal recommendation that Paul is going to give for both of these people, they delivered the goods when it was called upon. And actually, one of them literally delivers the goods in Epaphroditus. But this biographical snapshot is more than mere trivia for us. So this morning, as we kind of ponder this text some more, and as we consider what it's saying, it's more than trivia. It's more than trivia for us. It's not just kind of flyover country for us on our way to the next thing in the book of Philippians. And its location here at this particular part in the book is for uh, very intentional purposes. It's not there by accident. Instead, Paul is very intentionally presenting to his readers and his hearers, both in the first century and here today for us, examples of humility modeled after the preeminent example earlier in the chapter, and that being Jesus Christ himself. And in so telling, we the reader invited to consider for ourselves our own place in history. We're invited here at this point to consider our own lives at this moment. And we look at the examples of Paul, we look at the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, these faithful witnesses and these faithful servants, and we as a Jesus followers are invited to consider their example so that we might live a faithful example as well. To borrow the title of a famous work by Thomas Akempis, here we find in this text the imitation of Christ, the real imitation. So let's jump in. The first character is Timothy. Now Timothy is someone that is very familiar in the New Testament. So familiar, in fact, his name shows up in 12 of the 27 New Testament books. And so he's a, he's a figure in church history and also throughout the New Testament and this particular person has not only his name showing up, he also has two books named after him, First and Second Timothy, letters that were addressed uh, to him by the apostle. Well, Philippians opens with Paul and Timothy 
identified as servants of Christ Jesus, or as William Barclay calls them, the faithful henchmen. And so this particular person, Timothy, is not only known with his name showing up over and over, he's known in a particular way. And one of those ways is as this servant of Christ. In Romans, we see that he's a co-worker that signals he has a close working relationship with the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philemon, and Hebrews, put an asterisk next to Hebrews because there's been lots of biblical debate about who actually wrote Hebrews. He's identified as our brother, which speaks to uh, the familial relationship that exists in Christ between Timothy and Paul, but also between these folks and other Jesus followers. 1 Thessalonians draws these together with our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And 1 Corinthians goes another route. It refers to Timothy here as my beloved and trustworthy child in the Lord. So again, we have familial language here, but it's connected with affection. Timothy is not Paul's natural child. We know that much from Acts chapter 16. But there is a father-son relationship here for Paul who refers to Timothy in 1 Timothy as my true child in the faith, and again in 2 Timothy as my beloved child. And so these are the list that we have about Timothy. This is the way he is identified or referenced throughout the New Testament. Um, but we should probably pause here with just those last few ones. I think it's probably appropriate to pause, particularly with the announcement that we had in the moment for ministry about J.K. students First, to consider our own relationships in the church, particularly our familial relationship. Many times, we're quick to identify our own individual status as God's beloved children. I like the sound of that. I'm one of God's own, that I'm a child of God, and that I sing about that, and I, and I see my identity that way, and, and someone might say to you as you come for communion, someone say, beloved child, or use that type of reference with you, and that sits well with us. Or perhaps there's been a lot of writing and clamoring over the years uh, for another type of relationship, the one where we are siblings. We're sisters and brothers. And so there's a sense where we try to gather ourselves together as, as colleagues and partners, as uh, even more than that, as those who are joined together as family. But the one that oftentimes gets neglected in the, the modern church world is the familial relationship that we have from one generation to the next. That one oftentimes gets overlooked, or certainly it can get parsed out to the professionals or the experts or those who have very particular giftings. We say that's the folks. But what would it look like for us to have, like Paul here, his beloved child in the faith, to have a relationship in our life that looks like that, to see how the church might look differently, how our, our interaction with this congregation with one another looks different, when we're multi-layered that way. We see brothers and sisters, but we also see generations, older and younger, coming together. I wonder as adults, and I'm speaking hopefully as an adult right now to you as well, do we have those type of relationships, these true children of the faith, that we can count in our own life? Just something to ponder for us at this point. Turning back to Timothy, Acts recounts that Paul met him during his visit to Lystra, and that's in Acts chapter 16, and Timothy is identified as a Jesus follower at that point, who is the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. The pedigree, of course, signals some kind of trouble for the mission that Paul was on, and we know that uh, because at, at one point, we'll see in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, uh, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, 
And he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places. And certainly more can be said about Timothy here in his commitment to Christ, in his witness, his faithfulness. But let me offer one additional piece that comes to us from history. And this is, this is according to tradition. Tradition holds that Timothy was the victim of a violent death uh, in the year 97 AD. That at the age of 80, he was beaten, dragged through the streets, and ultimately stoned. The story goes that the mob that murdered him was enraged by his efforts to halt their procession honoring the goddess Diana by preaching the gospel. So clearly, with these in mind, the end of his life, as well as the witness that we see in Scripture, Timothy is the real deal. We talk about a faithful servant of Christ. This guy is the real deal. He follows Jesus. He leaves his family to go into uh, diverse settings and communities around uh, the world, uh, following with the Apostle Paul. Um, that's a significant undertaking. But then we add to that, he was circumcised as an adult. This is a commitment. This is someone who is saying, this is the direction I'm going. And if we read the New Testament, we hear at one point that uh, Paul encourages Timothy to take wine because of his stomach. Um, and he's become the patron saint of stomach and intestinal uh, illnesses because of that. This is somebody who is probably not super healthy, and yet he still goes. He still goes to serve. And if none of that is enough, we need it more than that. We see in verse 20, I have no one so like myself who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's what Paul writes. The underlying language behind genuinely is an adverb that suggests kinship. Literally, quote, legitimately born. This language is used in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, describing Timothy as Paul's true child in the faith. It's the same word, word group there. So with some creative strokes here, Paul announces the sending of the true child who truly cares uh, to them and who in verse 22, uh, we learn, can truly represent the apostle in his absence. That Timothy speaks for Paul. That's how closely aligned they were and how much his care was. And Paul lifts Timothy as the right person for the mission in verse 21, saying all of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Exactly who Paul has in mind here is hard to determine. Uh, like other places we've seen in Philippians, depending on which commentator you read, you might have a different answer uh, with who the they is at this point. But he's probably employing some kind of hyperbole to lift Timothy up, to say that Timothy is stepping forward when others wouldn't step forward for this particular mission, they had their reasons. Can't leave their job, can't leave their home, can't leave their family. What are the reasons? It doesn't mean that those reasons uh, were wrong-headed or poor re excuses. But rather, at this point, Timothy rises to the occasion, steps forward to be the one who goes, and that Paul identifies that aspect of his life. It speaks to Timothy's care and concern for this Philippian audience. Timothy cares about the welfare of the Philippian believers. And the recommendation set forth is that Timothy is to be received, but even more than that, his actions are to be modeled. The second character is not as, as famous as Timothy if we're to think about a number of passages that speak about this person. Epaphroditus uh, shows up in Philippians, but we don't really have his name mentioned in other places. But when he is mentioned, he's identified as my brother and co-worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. Now certainly some of these identifiers here right off the get-go 
sound very similar to the ones that are spoken of Timothy. So if you think about the quality of Timothy's life, Epaphroditus is being commended with similar type things. But let me draw our attention to at least three of these identifiers for us for some additional note. The first one is this, is this word messenger. And the background there, of course, like you would imagine with messengers, is this idea of someone who is delegated or sent with orders, some sort of instruction that they're going to be giving, or some sort of statement that's going to be made. So indeed, messenger is appropriate translation uh, as we think about uh, what it means for this role Epaphroditus is coming, and possibly he was the one bringing the letter uh, to them. But the word itself in Greek is a little bit more than that. Uh, there's something a little bit bigger here. Paul actually uses the word, and you can see it in the footnote. Uh, there's actually a, a footnote translation here with it, but apostolos is the word that's used for messenger here. And you can hear in that the word apostle, that Epaphroditus is being sent as an apostle uh, by the Philippian church uh, to Paul. And by itself, in the larger Greek language, we might say, okay, that's, that's appropriate with messenger, but because it's spoken in the church, and that church has carried a lot of weight around that word about a particular office and role, there might be something more significant in mind, in Paul's mind. One of the pieces for us to see here is that Paul the Apostle isn't afraid to use that type of language to talk about a friend. When you think about the distinction of different roles in the church, and what do you hang on to and hold yourself up, it might be easy for you to say, you know, this is my role, this is who I am, to the exclusion of others. I once, uh, at one point, knew a pastor who was, thought it was very important that he let everybody know that they were the pastor of the church, even though there was multiple pastors on staff, but they were the pastor of the church. And it was important that people knew that and recognized it and that that was announced. And that's not the type of thinking Paul uses here when he talks about this word with messenger, apostolos. He's not afraid to use the language. Certainly, the apostleship of Paul was different than Epaphroditus, of a different sort, and his sending was from a different place, but he's not afraid to apply this kind of loaded Christian word around his friend. A second word here is the word minister that we have. And the Greek word here uh, is the, a sense of, historically, it was used to talk about someone who was operating within their civic function. And it could be somebody that was working uh, in an official capacity, or in a lot of cases, uh, we see this in different passages, of folks who might do something to benefit the larger society or the city. They might build a building out of their great wealth and give it as a contribution to the city, um, as some sort of tribute or something that's offered in that way. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this particular word is a part of a word group that is applied to the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And so Paul, by drawing on this, this minister language, this word here, he sees Epaphroditus is performing a religious function, possibly, in the work of caring for Paul and his material needs. Just think about that for a moment. That this guy who's sent by the Philippian church to come and care for Paul while he's in prison, to come and, and, and bring the resources they need, because when you're in prison that day, you had to supply uh, your own food. It wasn't, there wasn't any kind of food and, and support. You had to provide that for yourself. That was coming out of your pocket or out of the pocket of your friends. And so Epaphroditus comes, and he's offering these gifts. He's serving and caring for Paul. And Paul here applies a word of one who operates in kind of a priesthood, a religious kind of way to talk about that. I dare say I don't think we oftentimes think about our acts of goodwill and service as being religiously uh, part of the religious system that we're involved in. 
We might think it's a good thing, and maybe as a good Christian I might do this, but to really think about this, that this is akin to making an offering or a sacrifice before God as we read through the Old Testament and seeing these things that are pleasing to God, that are very acts of kindness, those very acts of goodwill and cheer can also be those type of gifts. The third one is this, and it's picked up in verse 30. It's translated as risking his life. So this is not in the original list that I had mentioned before, but this is later on in the text. It talks about Epaphroditus as one who risked his life. The word behind this is one that comes to us uh, from a sense of gambling. It's a, it's a gambling notions to it. It's not only to risk, but it's to, to stake one's life on something, to, to forfeit one's life in this case and interest for another. And that's what Epaphroditus does. We see in our text that uh, he is one who's being sent back by the Apostle Paul and out of Paul's kindness is sending this word of commendation for him uh, so he can be received back, not as a quitter, but as somebody who's being sent back who, who was struggling, who was suffering to the point of death. But Epaphroditus goes to that place. He goes and serves at the risk of losing his own life at his own personal health. Who does that sound like? Who do we know that would go to the place of suffering and possibly death, or in this case death, for the care of another? Doesn't that sound like Jesus? I know it sounds like a Sunday school answer, but that's what Paul's getting at. That's what Paul's getting at here with Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's laying before the believers in Philippi these examples of two people that they know. Two people who exemplified and modeled the way of Christ, who in chapter 2 is displayed to us as one who comes from on high and steps into the lowest of places, who takes on servanthood, slavehood, takes on a cross. And he says, these are the examples that we have before us of people who are following after Jesus, who are going the way of Jesus. He says in verse 29, so welcome him, in the Lord with all joy and honor such people because they're living it. They're the real deal. So as we look at our own lives here today and as we consider our own uh, congregation and in our place in history, come back to that, that note, what does it look like for us to be these kinds of people? Well, if we're to be like Paul, we know Paul is one who took on suffering, literally is in jail as he's writing this because of the gospel. But we know here in our own text that Paul speaks a good word, that he treats uh, his friends and his colleagues, his co-workers with respect and kindness. That that's Paul's witness that we see just in the existence of this very text. Paul could easily create levels and said, you know what, I'm at the top and these other folks, these, these so-called colleagues are actually far lower associates than I am. But he speaks a good word about them. He treats them with great kindness. I was reading an article this past week about the impact of kindness in the workplace. I wonder if we'd like this kind of thing in our own congregation. It said kindness makes us happier. It gives us healthier hearts. Literally, your heart becomes healthier. It slows aging. Who wants to slow aging? Anybody want to slow aging? It improves relationships. And it is contagious. That's just kindness. It seems to me that kindness in a lot of ways functions as a way that helps us as we think about gospel proclamation. Don't we want to be a community that proclaims the gospel because we know the joy of the Lord? Don't we want to be a community 
that is uh, experiencing God's peace and shalom in all aspects of our life, including our physical aspects of our life, because of the justice and the care and concern we show to one another and the faithfulness we show in the way we live our lives? Don't we want to have improved relationships in the ways that we are been reconciled to God so we're also reconciled to one another? Don't we want a faith, a good news that's contagious, that others who are outside of the space, outside the hearing of these words, might hear the good news of Jesus Christ and might know God's love for them? I dare say kindness is a great way, a great doorway for us to walk through to be that community. The second one, if we'd be like Timothy, to show concern, deep concern for others, a concern that takes my own interest, my own self, my own desires, and sets them aside and puts the other in that primary place to say, what can I do to care for this person? What can I do to make their life whole that they might know God's goodness? Timothy certainly exemplified that and modeled that in the, in the earliest church. Today in the 21st century, we have our chance to be those people. Where would that show up for us? What would that look like for you? The third one in Epaphroditus, I think is, is that I would add to the sense of being one who's offering kindness, one who's showing concern for others, but Epaphroditus, the risk taker, the gambler, the ones who risk it all, the ones who recognize that the things that we hold tightest to have the biggest claim on our lives. That when we look at the end of time, if we look at the end of our lives, we might come to a place where we recognize our tight grip that's holding on the things that we said are the most important part of my life was actually a shackle around our wrist that didn't allow us to have freedom of movement. But what if like Epaphroditus, we were to be ones who took the risk, who took the plunge, who said, I'm going to go no matter what the cost. I'm going to be a person who lives generously, a person who lives faithfully, and a person who is a witness to resurrection and the good news. And then we'll see what God does with that. Now for some this morning, you might hear that and you say, wow, Jimmy, you're calling for some really radical stuff. A risk taker like that? I don't know if I could do that. That would be too much. There was actually a song they sang when I was in college at one of the camps I worked at. I worked at a, a, a camp locally here. Uh, it wasn't Sambica, but it was another camp. that was a Baptist camp. And they sang this song that is like, I think the, if I remember the words right, it was, Lord, please don't send me to Africa. I'll go anywhere to serve you. I'm open, but please don't send me there. Why would you sing that? That makes no sense. But we live lives like that. We have little things in our mind that say, that's too far, that's too much. But the risk taker says, I will go, I will serve. And if you're looking for ways to do that, maybe the door just needs to be cracked a little bit for you. Maybe it needs to be a situation where you look at your own uh, life of food and, and choices you make as far as eating, and you say, you know what, I'm going to forgo a snack this week so I can contribute candy to the candy drive. Maybe I'm going to forgo uh, some sort of a little treat for myself so I can buy something for the youth group. And these little steps help us as we begin to see bigger places where we can step into. But Epaphroditus' life, the risk-taker life, is a life that we're all called to because Epaphroditus, like Timothy and like Paul, their lives were modeled after Jesus Christ. And that's where our lives are to be modeled as well. 
the early days of the, the church, uh, there was an association of men and women that was called the Parabolani. And this particular group, uh, they had the responsibility, or they stepped up to the responsibility, which was an effort of dealing with people that had dangerous and infectious diseases. And so one of the things they did is they served as nurses and care providers uh, to people amidst the plagues and different things that, that struck. They touched the dead bodies and the things that people thought were too dangerous uh, to be involved in. Of course, their name is based on this word, this parabolani, which was the title they gave themselves in their work and service was based on that same word for risk taker. They recognized the call of Christ on their life, which meant to serve in some very real ways, which were dangerous. They gave all so that others might know Christ's life. Friends, that's where we're being called today. We're called to follow the example of these earliest witnesses who followed Christ, so that here in our own day and age, we too might be counted as faithful, faithful Christ followers. May it be so for each one of us. Amen.